about that. Uh, this weekend, we are going to be continuing, actually resuming, our worship series entitled uh, Keeping a House or Building a Christian Home. And those of you who were with us last weekend, you may remember we had a special guest uh, from Norway, so we took a break from the series. Bishop Torkild Masvi shared some updates on the work in Norway and in Iceland and Israel. And he was also here, uh, and actually the reason he was here in, at all was uh, uh, we had a pastor's conference on Tuesday, Wednesday up in Lake Geneva area, or actually Delavan, if you know that part of Wisconsin, at the Lake Lawn Resort. We go there every year with a group of pastors, about 100, 120 pastors, their wives sometimes, and other leaders from the area. And, uh, and Torquild has been adopted by that conference for years, and then we also uh, brought him here for the weekend. He made it back safely home, but actually on the Wednesday uh, after the conference was over, this is this past week, uh, maybe you remember this, there was a bunch of storms that came through. And I'm on the conference planning committee. I'm the treasurer. And so we actually had a debrief meeting and luncheon. And for the first time in like the 15 years I've been here that we've been going up there, we actually had to go down into the bowels of the building uh, in order to stay safe while there was this tornado potentially that was passing through. It was a warning, right, not a watch. And so I didn't get a chance to go outside and watch the storm like apparently most of you would have done if you were there. But um, fortunately, there was no real damage, no real touchdown, I don't think. So we, uh, we had our lunch down there, sat on the floor, did our debrief, and then drove home through the rain, which was so-so. But, um, but the idea of storms is also timely also for Team Griner. Uh, some of you have been with us through the series. You know we've been working on some house projects, so I wanted to give you a quick update. See, a couple weeks ago, we built uh, the floor for the addition. This is off the back side of our house. And then we had a work weekend. A couple St. Peter friends were with us, Josh Harding, Dan Schmidt on that day. Tom Joseph also is there to help out the next Monday. And Sarah's father-in-law is her father. My father-in-law is there with me. And on Monday, we were able to get that roof over top of it which made me a lot less nervous about going up to Wisconsin when storms were coming. But there was one problem, and that is on the other side of the house, we didn't get to build the addition out for the second floor, so there was like this uh, water slide, potentially, I was worried about. So I'm not an engineer, but I thought my solution was pretty cool. I took one of those little foam boards, kind of propped it up in place in there, and I'm proud to say, for the most part, the basement was pretty dry. Uh, there was no flooding issues into our basement, so... Whew, kind of survived a storm. And then yesterday, uh, Dan and Josh came back, and we got up high, and we built out that corner. So tomorrow, uh, the Groms and I and a few others are heading to South Africa to do some uh, training and some uh, work with our partners down there. So I'm feeling a lot better now <laughs> about the storms that may come in the next few weeks uh, because we were able to take care of that part of the house. So uh, by the way, we're going to be done with this sermon series, so I'm not going to be giving you photo updates of our house for forever. So just, it fits in with this series, and actually uh, pretty closely with what turns out to be our topic for today. We've been through four of these weeks already. We talked about laying a foundation, or building actually, on the proper foundation, that is Jesus. Talked about communication, forgiveness, commitment. Today, we're focusing on surviving storms. Next weekend, Pastor Randy is going to close us out with one more on welcoming homes. But today, we want to take our thoughts, and not just on storms that may pop up, weather-related, but actually something much more uh, familiar to us. We're talking about those dark places, the pit Sarah talked about earlier, that we will often sometimes find ourselves 
in, whether it's in our marriage, if we're married, whether it's with our kids, if we're parents or co-workers, classmates, with our neighbors, with our employers. I mean, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you know that it's almost more likely as a follower of Jesus to face storms uh, than otherwise. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, But then he goes on to say, but do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. And Andy, you're right, I'm with you. So we're going to explore that today, especially through the lens of the story of Ruth and Naomi. Now, Kevin, you did a great job reading that first part of chapter 1. This is the cover page from an illustrated manuscript from the 14th century of the book of Ruth. And if you can see any of that detail... Uh, what you see there is some women out in the field, they're gleaning. Maybe you remember that part of the story where Ruth eventually goes on to meet Boaz, who he ends up uh, taking her as a wife. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, we do have some people there that seem to have like animal features. I don't know what that means, so we're just going to ignore that. And just try to remember what's going on in this part of the story. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 starts out with this. In the days when the judges ruled... Now, I'm going to pause right there. Ruth, in our Bibles, comes right after the book of Judges. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? So uh, both by its placement in the canon as well as this first verse, we're told this is taking place before King David, before King Saul, sometime in that span, plus minus 400 years, from the time that Israel came into the promised land under Joshua and the time of King Saul. So somewhere in that span... Uh, there was a famine in the land. Right, you got to like that. Not even through verse 1 and you've got a storm. In this case, uh, the loss of livelihood probably, food security, job security. Right, We've not necessarily experienced famine in this our country, the United States, but it still happens all throughout the world and it can be absolutely devastating. Right, So not even through one verse and we've got some pretty dark times. So uh, you heard what happened next. Uh, A man of Bethlehem in Judah, um, remember that, by the way, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, And so what happened in this particular case is some of God's people said, listen, uh, it is so bad here that we actually have to pack up our family and we have to move to a strange and foreign country, or at least somewhere uh, that wasn't what they called home. Moab, as you journey through the Old Testament, is not necessarily a friendly and safe place to go. It's often a place that's at odds with the people of God. Sometimes there were times of peace and truce, and maybe this was one of those times. Uh, But it's not like they're going to a a posh uh, resort town to wait out the storm, right? Uh, They're going and leaving behind their family, their friends, most of their possessions probably. And from what we can tell from the rest of the story, they're going to stay there for a little while. So as the story keeps going, uh, what we find out is that's not the only storm. Um, In verse 3, Elimelech, that's her husband, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So just picture this. Uh, You have fled for your life and your livelihood to a strange and foreign land, and as soon as you get there, or at least shortly after, uh, the husband, the provider, the leader of your family dies suddenly. Another storm. So now Naomi finds herself uh, without a home, 
without a livelihood, without a husband and a provider. But at least she has her sons. Her sons, Malin and Chilion, end up marrying Orpah and Ruth, two local girls, Moabite women. Uh, we don't know their whole family of origin, but the Jewish tradition recorded in the Midrash gives us an option. It says, suggests that they're actually the daughters of the king of Moab. King Eglon is what we know his name to be. So maybe it was that uh, Naomi and Elimelech were pretty well-to-do, and they went and they took up residence with the king of Moab. That's a possibility. It's not in the Bible, but it's, an, it's a possibility. And, and maybe then there was some intermarriage between Bethlehem and the leaders of that town and Moab, because we know that Elimelech uh, and Boaz, later on in the story, were both well-to-do and well-regarded in the city. But, but we don't know that from the text. We just know that from maybe church and Jewish tradition. And so what we find then is that Naomi and now her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, are also going to face another storm. So here's Naomi without her husband and with these two sons, and soon their two daughter-in-laws. And it, asks, it causes us to pause and ask the question, what do you do in the midst of a storm? Now, again, we're transferring our thoughts earlier from storm watching to the storms of life, and my guess is to say most of us don't get excited when we get bad news. Divorce papers filed. Um, a health report coming back from your doctor that's devastating. Um, papers from your employer saying you're no longer employed failing a test, losing friends. Um, most of us, when we face those kinds of storms, don't get excited, don't run into them. If anything, we may try to run the other way or try to hope that they just go away. What I'd like to invite you to consider today is that there is another option in the midst of storms, and that would be to lean in to what God might be doing in the midst of them. So let's see what happens from the story of Naomi and Ruth. We're told that Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now again, we don't know exactly what Naomi is doing. We don't know if she's out gleaning in the fields like Ruth was going to do later on in the story, or if she was comfortably uh, taken care of in the king of Moab's house. That's another possibility. But what we do know for sure is that she's paying attention to the news from back home, right? She's got her ear to the ground, you might say, or she's paying attention to her Twitter feed. She knows what's happening back in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of her forefathers, and she knows what her God is up to. That's one thing I think that is notable. Naomi did not give up hope in the God who saves. Just think about how easy it could have been for her to say, you know what, I just lost my land, my livelihood, my husband, my sons. I'm done with this God. He's not done anything for me lately. It would have made a lot of sense for her to say, you know what, I'm now in Moab, I'm comfortable here, I've got potential with these daughters-in-law, maybe I'm just going to ride that out and see if it works out. She very easily could have just walked away from God, and it's easy for us too to say, God, where are you? 
why are you letting this happen? How can you be good when my life is so hard? There's a temptation for us in the midst of the storm to begin to doubt the God who saves. But from Naomi and Ruth, you'll see, that isn't the only option. So Naomi hears that there's hope back in the land. And so she does the most logical thing for a woman to do in that context. She goes to her daughters-in-law, who are now widows as well, childless too, and says, why don't you go back to your families and see if you can't find someone else who will marry you. You see, in the Jewish tradition and in the Old Testament law, there was a clear path that they would have followed if they maintained their relationship to Naomi. They would have been responsible or required to go and find another male in the household of their husband who would then become their redeemer, would take them under his protection, and would continue the family line of a brother or a nephew who had died. And later on, we see that's what happens with Boaz. Seems strange to us, like, I get that. Uh, So what Naomi said was, listen, uh, you could come with me back to Israel, and there are men in the family who might be able to protect and take care of you, but doesn't it just make a lot more sense to stay here where you're comfortable, where you know everybody, where you are welcome, and, and try to start your life over here? Now, we're not told how old Ruth or Naomi is in the text. So again, this is not in our scriptures, but Going back to the Jewish tradition from the Midrash and the rabbis of the day, they have a number that they speculate, and they think that Ruth at this point is about 40 years old. Uh, They'd been there in Moab about 10 years, so maybe she got married around about 30, and now she's around about 40. And And the Midrash also says Naomi is probably about 80. So I just offer that to you to do a little math. So what Naomi says is, listen, you can come with me and you can go back, but then are you going to wait for me to find the kinsman redeemer, hopefully get pregnant pretty quickly? I'm already 80, and then you're going to wait about another 20 years or so to marry my new son. Uh, and then for Ruth, she'd be about 60. Do you see the problem? Right? It seems like there's no good reason for Ruth and Orpah to go with her back to the land, even though God had finally provided relief from the famine. So it makes sense that she prays, may the Lord grant you rest, each of you in the household of your husband. And after a great deal of conversation and tears, it seems like this was a tight-knit family group already. They'd been through some storms. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth does not. But before we take a look at the part of Ruth in the story, I want you to note that Naomi did not cling to anyone or anything else but God alone. Right? She could have said, hey, I'm going to at least take these Uh, daughters-in-law with me, and maybe uh, through one of them, I'll be able to be provided for. That would have been another option that made sense, but it's interesting. She lets everything go that she might otherwise have used for strength and help and hope. She doesn't cling to anything or anyone else but God alone. Here's what I've learned about being in the pit, in the dark places in life. Uh, it's easy to feel like we are entirely alone. And it's painful, but we often discover the end of ourselves and our strength. Our helplessness is exposed when we're in the dark places of the pit and when we're overwhelmed by the storms. 
But here's what's also true. For those who know God and those who follow Jesus, what we learn is in the midst of the storm, we are never actually entirely alone. For it's in those darkest of places or at the end of ourselves that God is able to finally grab a hold of us and do his work of redeeming and restoring that could not be accomplished if we were standing on our own strength. Naomi gives up everything else she could have put her hope in so that it could rest in the only one in whom she truly should hope. So Naomi says to Ruth, who's still persisting, I want to go with you, right? I love you. I trust you. Um, She says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. This is Naomi to Ruth, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What's interesting is Naomi does not try to make the situation look or feel better uh, by explaining it away. Um, She doesn't even try to make God look better in the situation, although that's often a temptation. She didn't try to downplay or explain away her suffering. She just named it. It's easy for us when we're going through a hard time to say, well, you know, God's busy, right? Maybe he's focused on other things. Or maybe even more likely, well, I know God's going to work something good out of it, which is true. God always works for the good of those who love him. But God doesn't need our help when life is hard. He doesn't need us to justify his activity. In fact, sometimes what we need to do is say, you know what? I don't understand God. And I certainly don't understand how he could let this terrible thing happen to me. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our justification of his sovereignty. What he needs us to do is acknowledge that sometimes life is hard. And for no good reason. As far as we can see. Because it's when we're in that point of hopelessness and helplessness on our own, it's precisely there where he can meet us in the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, as King David later would go on to write, and then lead us through to hope and life thereafter. So Naomi doesn't try to explain away her situation. Ruth is well aware of what she's getting into. And in spite of Naomi's protestations, she says, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so we see Ruth now and Naomi stepping out in faith, trusting in this God who saves. They couldn't see the solution yet. They didn't know that a man would be ready as soon as they got to the city gates to welcome them into the community. If you read through to the end of chapter 1, what we find out is there's a whole community gathering as soon as Naomi and Ruth show up. And some people have speculated, why is there like a big party and a reception? How do they know they're coming back? And one potential solution, again, from the Midrash is that they're gathering not actually as a celebration of Naomi and Ruth's return, but they're gathering for the funeral of Boaz's wife. Again, not in the scriptures, but an interesting take on what is in the scriptures. Because we know that Boaz was uh, wifeless and at that point and childless, which means he also could have suffered the loss of a spouse and the loss of children. Um, And so he was being prepared for what God had uniquely designed for him to do. 
he himself may have been about the same age as Naomi, so he could have been in his upper 70s or 80s, but he takes this younger girl, we know she's younger than him, much younger in fact, as his wife, and according to the Jewish tradition, in fact, they got married, got pregnant, and he died that same night. Or again, not in the scriptures, so hold on to it loosely, but what the scripture does tell us is that Naomi took that child, Obed, and raised her, him as her own. That Obed would go on to be the father of Jesse, who then gave birth, uh, or was the father of David, who would become king. And of course, from David eventually comes Jesus. So here we have these two women in the most unlikely of situations, facing down storm after storm after storm without any reason to hope or have security on their own, trusting in God, stepping forward in faith, and God provides in a way that only God could. And it started with them acknowledging that while they were in that dark place, while they were in the pit, they were not, in fact, alone and without hope because they had a God who stands with them and you have a God who stands with you in the darkest of places. A God who would go so down deep that he would suffer and die. He would dwell in death for three days, but then to arise. And so our resurrected Jesus journeys with us through the dark places and then leads us to light and life on the other side. Friends, don't try to explain away. Uh, don't try to escape the dark places that may come. For those very storms may be the places where God is shaping you increasingly like Jesus, and they are certainly the places where he's inviting you to know and trust him more. So bring on the storms. We have a God who conquers them too. Amen.